0: Easter, we continue our look at the idea of evangelism. Remember, we're considering the therefores of the the resurrection, the implications, what does it mean, and the angle on that, the window into that, that we are taking, the theme on that, that we're taking this year is go and tell, the Great Commission. Jesus, after he was raised from the dead and spent time with his disciples, then went to the mount and ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven and was enthroned, as we uh, just sang, he gave his his disciples a commission. He, he, if you will, uh, promoted them from disciples to apostles, from students to missionaries, from students to ambassadors, uh, to take the message of the kingdom the message that they had been trained in for three years. And as many students, I, I, think, uh, I think of the movie The Karate Kid, if any of you remember that that uh, old classic, <laughs> it's weird to say that any movie in my childhood was an old classic, but I guess it is now. As uh, so I'm getting old, as I told Mark earlier. But right, yeah, the old, the old, you know, you know, uh, you know, paint on, paint, you know, whatever, the, wax on, the right. wax on, wax, yeah, the wax on, wax off, the, the painting movie, didn't, the sand the floor, you know, old Mr. Miyagi with his uh, with his techniques, and and you'll remember you'll remember uh, the Karate Kid, Ralph Macchio. You know, when, when, when Mr. Miyagi was, was having him wax the cars, uh, he was like, what's this about? You know, what does this have anything to do with karate? And, and then, of course, he, he had to paint the fence. <laughs> he had to do the old paint the fence move. Um, and he started getting a little upset, especially when he had to sand the deck, you know, and <laughs> he had to do those circle moves. Um, and then that one day when, when uh, Mr. Miyagi comes out to him and says, how is it, and Ralph Macchio's just... You know, he's done, he's done. You know, throws the sanding blocks down and and Mr. Miyagi throws a punch at him, you know, and all of a sudden he waxes on and, and blocks the punch and then paints, you know, and then sands and whatever else he's doing. And all of a sudden, all these moves that did not make sense to Ralph Macchio now click into place and they find their place. And in some sense, that's what the disciples had. They had three years of wax on, wax off, three years of paint the fence, three years of sand the floor, uh, traveling all over, finding themselves in storms, healing some people but not others and you know just, and 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 thinking they were on it, you know, and then not being rebuked when they had a plan that they thought would be right in line with what Jesus would want and being challenged to do things they would never think of doing. So all of this sort of training now brings them to the place where when they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost will click into place. And they will take these 3 years of training and they will go forth into the world to declare. And we know, we know the impact of this because they will go die for this. Some, when it clicks into place, when all of a sudden, sand on the floor, they, it finds its place within the repertoire of, of karate. And the teaching of Jesus by the gift of the Holy Spirit makes sense. You see this with Paul. In his conversion, he's knocked from his horse. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. And Paul spends three days blind, reflecting on what it means that in fact Christ is raised from the dead. And as we've talked about when we went through the book of Acts, it's as if all of Paul's pharisaical training, all of his Hebrew training, just starts clicking into place in a way he did not understand it. He, he thought he was training to be a good painter, waxer, sander, and it turns out he's a karate master. He thought he understood what Pharisaism was. He thought he understood what the Old Testament was. But all he could see was the waxing of the cars and the sanding of the floor and the painting of the fence. And then he meets the risen Lord. That's like Mr. Miyagi comes out to him and throws a punch and all of a sudden things start clicking into place that he just never saw before. And he actually has to go away and study for a couple years because he needs to go back and consider everything he'd been taught and how now I see it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, there's nothing to stop him. You can stone me, you can beat me, you can whip me, I'm gonna proclaim it. And so that charge is to the church, it's to the disciples now become apostles, and through them to us. But as we considered last week, it is to us. It's not that we're all to be missionaries, with capital M, but we as a church are to be missional and our lives are to be missional. You're not just biding your time until you die and go to glory. Your life is missional. We're to have a kingdom mission and vision to what we're doing. So, all right, so that's what we've been thinking about. Now today, our text is Romans chapter 10. And the classic text it's one of those hop, skips, and jumps on the old Romans Road, if you remember. If you ever uh, were taught evangelism by the way of the Romans Road, uh, you know, where you kind of work your way through, you know, the wages of sin is death, and, you know, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and hop, skip, and jumping, and, and uh, kind of these texts through Romans that lead you through the gospel. And this, of uh, uh, course, is a classic one Romans 10 9 and 10, maybe. Some of you might even have that memorized, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want us to think about that confession this morning, and then the charge, because we're going to have a charge in this text that comes through, in in Paul's beautiful ways, rhetorically. It comes through questions. But how is this going to happen? So let's let's first think about the the this this confession. So Eric asked us to pray today for uh, for family members who uh, who don't know the Lord, and we all feel that we are we're we're gonna especially as we come to communion, we remember the fact that we have this invite to the table, and it's also gonna be a time for us to remember those who are not, and the desire we have very much for them to come to the table. Well, what do they need to do? Again, what is it that has to happen in them in order to bring them to the table, to bring them into the family? Well, here, Paul tells us very simply, this is essentially what you're taking out with you, what you you offer, what you declare, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now I want us to think about this Christian confession here for a second. I have just a couple little sub points on it. First, I want to think about its simplicity. This confession is not a whole systematic theology though. One of my points is going to be it's theological, but it is simple. At the end of the day, we must believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember, and and the reason I referenced Isaiah 52 last week was the very nature of the good news. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings the good news. Right? And the image there is of a person, a messenger, running. You know, running to your city to announce the city's waiting. How did things go? You know, how did the battle go? We, we need a messenger to come. And here comes a messenger running to tell us. And we essentially can look at his feet. And we can tell it's like he's running on air. Man, he's got good news to bring us. If he's dragging his feet, right? We, we know that we use this kind of language, right? You're dragging your feet. It's something you don't want to tell me. Ah, but that one who's coming with good news. How beautiful. His feet How beautiful the feet of the one on the mountain who brings the good news, who speaks the gospel of peace, who says our God reigns. That is, Christ is Lord. When we take that our God reigns from Isaiah 52 and we bring it through the lens of Jesus Christ, it looks like our God reigns, but it looks even more particular. Christ is Lord. Christ reigns. Christ is the one reigning. He is God. And this is the good news. Now, again, how often is that your evangelistic message? How often is that what the, the good news, the gospel of peace that you're bringing? That our God reigns. That he has conquered death. That he has conquered sin. That he has conquered Satan. And that he is the one to whom all must bow. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 2. I love singing Psalm 2. I've loved it ever since I, I came to this church many years ago. I love singing Psalm 2. And I just love how at the end, it just calls the nations, the nations who are uh, uh, reviling God, the, the nations that are plotting and scheming against Him in His glory, at the end, they tell the nations, you must bow and you must kiss the sun or he will shatter you into pieces with a rod of iron. This idea of God in Christ reigning is the message we proclaim. So on the one hand, it's very simple, right? Christ reigns. Secondly, it's particular. Notice it goes from our God reigns to Jesus Christ is lord. This is not just a merely theistic statement. It is a particular statement. How does God reign? God reigns in the person of Jesus Christ. That one, that Jewish carpenter, that rabbi was crucified and is raised and he reigns, he is lord. It is in his name. Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The message that we proclaim, the confession that we seek to, by God's grace, bring forth out of those that we preach to, is simple, but it is particular. It is Jesus Christ who is Lord, and He must be honored. Jesus Himself said, I am the way. There is no other way to the Father but by me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no way to the Father but by me. This way is particular. This message is particular. And our confession must be particular. It is Christ. Thirdly, it's historical. It's one of the beautiful things about Christianity, about the scriptures themselves, but about the truth that we proclaim. We don't We don't. The message that we proclaim in the gospel is not some ethereal, mystical thing. Now, don't get me wrong. There are ethereal aspects to it. There are mystical things, no doubt about it. But Christianity at its roots is historical. It is flesh and blood. It was a wooden cross with iron nails. It was real blood. It was a broken body. It was an actual tomb. It's physical. It's historical. On a particular Sunday, Jesus walked physically out of a grave. That either happened physically and historically, or it didn't. And if it didn't, then Christianity is a lie. I mean, that's what it gets down to. It's that historical. And again, I I love this even even in the gospel writings, right? Uh, in, In the year of Caesar Augustus, while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, a census was to be taken, we're told, right at the birth of Christ. And I love that. I tell my students all the time, why is that in there? It's like the Bible, it just roots, like you can go say, hey, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, was there a census taken? Like it's just, it's rooted, right? It's that historical Roman thing that brings Mary to the place where she's going to give birth to the Savior. And you can go see if the Bible is a good witness. Was there a census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria? So it's like historical reference to it, and it's just, it's earthy. And our confession is earthy. We believe that Jesus is Lord. You might say, well, that's hard to get my mind around. What's that mean? But then, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead historically, that he walked out of that grave. This isn't a Joseph Smith, oh, I found the golden tablets, and I don't know where they went, but you just got to believe me the message. Or or Muhammad who wanders out into the wilderness and says, Allah spoke to me. No one else was around, but here's what he said. And you have to believe me. Right? This wasn't, oh, some Gnostic sense of I was in a deep spirit. You know, I was in the spirit in a deep way. This is historical. It's gritty. And it's right there and we confess it. So it's simple. It's particular. It's historical. It's theological. It's theological. And here we need a little bit of the context. Because Paul is in the middle of this talk, and I think this is very important for us, to what we said, our word of exhortation this morning from Matthew 22. Let me just go back to the beginning of Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. that's That's a good reminder to us that zeal for God alone is insufficient. Being zealous for God, being a passionate believer, but believing the wrong thing, does not gain you anything. It gets you in the wedding feast with the wrong clothes, as we thought about in Matthew 22 today. Zeal is not going to cut it. You can have all the zeal in the world, but if you're zealous for the wrong thing, it does not profit you anything. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is to say, and this is important, because what do we confess? If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. That is, if our confession is focused on him and the gifts that we receive from him, we will be saved. But what Paul is saying is this is not what Israel would do. They did not want to receive it. They did not want to receive the righteousness of God given to them in Christ, but sought instead to establish a righteousness of their own. Again, going back to the man in in Matthew 22 in the parable of the wedding feast, which for those listening on tape was our word of exhortation today. The guy's in the party, but he's not dressed right. He doesn't have the wedding garments on. I think, and I'm I'm not trying to add more to Jesus' story than than we have, but, but just from this, if we wanted to weave these two texts together, he refused it. They offered him a wedding garment. He said, no, thank you. I prefer my own clothes. I prefer the dress I've prepared. I've worked hard to get these clothes. I don't need the clothes you're giving to me. This was Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I've done all these things, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, blameless. I've worked hard for these clothes. I've labored my whole life to put together this suit of clothes. Now I come here and you tell me take them off and put on the clothes I have for you. It takes Paul being knocked off his horse and blinded for three days and meeting the risen Lord Jesus Christ to make him turn around and say, actually now with new eyes, I see that my old clothes were actually rags, filthy rags, rubbish, he calls them. I count it all as rubbish, all as loss for the sake of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes by the law but the righteousness, which is through Christ. Because conf- Paul rolls right from this to the confession. This is not saying, oh, Israel had, they were just working on the wrong thing. They were driving their car in the wrong direction and they need to turn around and drive their car in a different direction. It's a completely different thing. They were operating on their own sense of righteousness When the answer is not, no, don't pursue that way, pursue it this way. The answer is stop pursuing and receive. Receive. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about this, and here he quotes these little bits from Deuteronomy 30. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That is what in Deuteronomy 30 he's talking about, he he gives Israel a commandment. And he says, the commitment I'm giving to you today is not hard. You don't have to say, what mountains do I have to climb? What oceans do I need to swim? At the end of the day, Paul is interpreting Deuteronomy 30 to say, the law is not far away from you. the, The fulfillment of that law is not something you have to strive hard for. It's just receiving it. I give it to you. It's already in you. You just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So there's a theological reality. In confirming that, Je- confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're acknowledging that you are not. You're acknowledging that what you have, you have because of him. He is Lord. He was raised from the dead for you. And hence, his righteousness. Is what you're clothed in. So it's simple. It's a pretty simple confession. It's particular, it's historical, it's theological, and finally it's personal. Right? We must confess it. <laughs> I must confess it. Right? You must bow your knee. You must bow before him. Every knee will bow, and every individual tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul gives us this in verse 9, that if you confess, second person, right, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a personal nature to this. And then, just putting it beautifully, I'm going to skip all the way down to uh, verse uh, Um. Oh, right down to verse 13. Because here he, he says that and then he wraps it back up beautifully by saying, again, coming back to the simplicity of it, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There it just puts it, he takes everything and just bundles it up into a neat little package. Do you know what this confession is? This confession, here's what I mean by confessing in your uh, with your mouth and believing in your heart. Here's what it means. You call on the name of the Lord. You say, just like the beggar did, right? Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? Lord, have mercy on me. I call upon you for salvation. Right? You, you, you call upon him that you might receive it from him. You do that, you will be saved. There, there is a real open simplicity about that. So what's my aim here? Well, one, for you to remember the confession that we make, lest we be zealous, but zealous without knowledge. But also to equip us to go and to tell because Paul now drives us to that in verse 14. So in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks these, this series of rhetorical questions, but how, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This, this is the, you know, my students ask me all the time, you know, when we get into theology, the question, the classic question of like the native on the island. What about, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? Do they go to heaven or hell? You know, they've never heard. You know, how, what, what would happen to them? Now, now Paul, uh, Paul challenges that in this very passage down in verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out. And he quotes Psalm 19. And, and Mark had us sing that uh, this morning. But it's a, it's a good theological question. You know, what about people who have never heard the gospel? Do they, you know, isn't that kind of unfair for them to, uh, to go to hell if they've never heard, they've never had a chance to believe it? I think it, if, you, if you've not been tugged in your heart with that question, you're just not being honest. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenging, thorny little theological question. But if we just use Romans 10, 14, and 15, well, which is 14, this verse will challenge us, right? Because if we say, if we say, well, people who have never heard, it's not fair. It's not right. God, God's not going to send them to hell if they've never even heard about Jesus. Well, well, if that, of course, if that were the case, then, then probably the wisest form of evangelism would be never tell anybody. Like you, you'd have whole evangelism courses about how to keep this thing covered up so that nobody hears, so that having not heard, they could never be damned. Right? There would be, when you have a system that's logical conclusion kind of runs contrary to the scriptures, you know your assumptions are probably wrong. Paul seems to say if they confess, they'll be saved. And they can confess by believing. But they can only believe if they've heard, and they can only hear if someone preaches, and they can only preach if they've been sent. Which seems to imply if we re-engineer it backwards the other way. If we don't send them, if we don't send preachers, then the preaching won't happen. If the preaching doesn't happen, the hearing's not going to happen. If the hearing doesn't happen, the believing won't happen. If the believing doesn't happen, the calling on the name of the Lord will not happen. And if the calling on the name of the Lord does not happen, they will not be saved. Therefore, the rhetorical questions push us, therefore, send. Send them. Preach it. Tell them. Let them hear. That hearing they may believe and believing they may call out and calling out they may be saved. Paul does not give us any sense. Now, again, and I appreciate Tim Keller one time talking about this and saying, in some sense, it's beyond his pay grade what happens to the native on the island. Totally agree with that. I don't know what the Lord will do. The the Lord appeared directly to Paul. Paul. Could the Lord appear directly to people? and could the, I don't know what the Lord will do. All I know is what this text says. And what this text says is, you need to go. You need to tell them. Because if you don't tell them, they won't hear. And if they don't hear, they won't believe. They don't believe. They won't call. If they don't call, they won't be saved. That's what you need to know, Bill Spanger. Okay, you, don't, you don't need to know how I'll handle them and what I'll do. That, you don't need to know any of that. You need to go. You need to know go. Or send. As we said, the Great Commission is something for us. It's not all for me. It's not like each of us are to go into the highways and the byways, but we're to send. We're to care about that. Somebody needs to say. Somebody needs to send. Somebody needs to go. Somebody needs to preach. And we need to do that in all our little ways with our family members. How do we do it? Right, Eric, you're sent into your family. Now maybe someone else will come, but you've been sent and commissioned into your family. And I've been sent into my family and into my little community. I've been sent into the world of Chapel Field. I've been sent into to Westchester County. I've, where have you been sent? Tell them. Because if they don't ever hear it, they won't believe. If they don't believe, they won't call. and If they don't call, they will not be saved. So the challenge and the charge is there for us to go, to declare, and to tell. And the gift is from the Lord. And the confession is that which we've read. Simple, particular, historical, theological, and personal. We don't need to be, it's wonderful to be theologians. We should all be, we are all theologians, whether we like it or not, just good ones or bad ones. But, The message we're bringing, good news, is very simple. Why should they call upon the name of the Lord? Are you bringing the message? Do you have beautiful feet? Are you declaring the fact that our God reigns and we've just come through Easter? You know, what a time for us to celebrate and rejoice and call people to know the victory of our Lord on our behalf over death itself. So let us declare. Let us call that indeed through us, by God's grace, the world might be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us beautiful feet, we pray. Make us those who carry uh, with fleet feet the good news of the gospel, the fact that our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, reigns over heaven and earth. He reigns over death itself. He reigns over Satan and sin, and he brings us into eternal glory. We pray for the lost. We pray for those who do not know you. We pray for our friends, our family members. We pray for the strangers. Father, we know that that it is not because we are better than they are that we are here this morning, but that that you and your mercy have forgiven us, you have called us. And so we pray for them, that, Father, you might extend your mercy to them, that you might call them, that they might confess and believe and call and be saved. So Father, strengthen us as a church. Inflame our hearts with a love for the lost, that we might be bold to declare your word, and that many through us by your grace might be saved. For We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.